Welcome to Reimagining Atlantis. My name's Tori, and I'll be your host. Finally, this is the episode that I have wanted to do since episode four. While starting this, I realized in order for this to make sense, I had to do a lot of explaining. The last episode had some unfortunate math, and this one, I learned some sense about a quarter of the way through. I am not a mathematician, and I would love to have someone double check my logic or my work. Even I only have a confidence level of about 85%. I am glad that this fever dream of a right fest is over and I can go back to the nice low Plato and crew. I'm always surprised each time I see a new listener. I'm even more surprised and honored to have you listen more. I just love Atlantis and mythology so much, and this podcast is helping me organize my chaotic thoughts. I've been mulling around all of this information for years. Letting it out is almost therapeutic. There is still so much to go through, and I feel like sometimes I'm going too fast, and others way too slow. Maybe that means I'm going just right. I'm happy to go over some of the other stories that I've alluded to, or as I like to refer them, side quests. For now, I have to stay focused on our main quest, which is Plato and Atlantis. I know me. Without a script, I'm going on a tangent. I am so glad that you're hungry for more. I have felt literally starved for anything new on Atlantis that made sense with what was actually said and how it was meant. I want to fly off the handle sometimes with these alien crossbreeding, crystal healing, insidious tribes that branched off everywhere conspiracy theorists who never actually even read Plato's works. Thank you for taking the time to at least listen to the works, even if you have to hear my commentary in the interim. I'm trying very hard to present to you the truth as I understand it. I'm citing my sources and explaining why I think it is the way it is. I just want to say how much I appreciate you. Thank you. So for this episode, I will be using the help of just one of our favorite authors. Plato, a classical Greek intellectual who is our primary source for Atlantis living roughly around 425 BCE. We have established that the plain of Atlantis that surrounded Atlantic City was pretty large. It's safe to say that not all of it collapsed into the sea. There are some things that don't change geographically such as fault lines. We know that the lost city has to be on a fault line. We can all agree, earthquakes and floods. We've also established that the plain that surrounded Atlantic City was pretty large. It's safe to say that not all of it collapsed into the sea. We also know that there was a lake that separated Egypt from Atlantic City. And there was a river that connected to a marsh, or probably a lagoon, by the ocean. Now remember how I said that any child of Okeanos was connected to flowing rivers, or streams, or springs. Anything that's stagnant is not a child of Okeanos. 
that spring, even though Poseidon is known for bringing up the springs, it is truly Okeanos that makes the springs. That plain of Atlantis is a lot of land to cover. So why don't we see what we should be looking for? What did Atlantic City look like? It had an unusual structure, and it was described by Plato with these quotes. Plato bore Poseidon five sets of male twins. Poseidon settled them in part of an island, which is said to have been the fairest of all plains. No man could get to the island, for ships and voyages were not yet invented. So, when Poseidon and Plato were making baby atlases, ships didn't exist yet. They hadn't been invented. Then later, they invented ships, as Atlantic City was a harbor or trade city. This also means that by default, during the Titan Olympian War, there would also not be ships. Back to the story. Poseidon, being a god, found no difficulty in making special arrangements for the center island. Well, I hope Poseidon found that part easy. If I were a god, the minimum I should be able to do is make special arrangements for my very own island. For simplicity's sake, we're going to call this center island, Plato's Island. Back to the story. He, Poseidon, brought up two springs of water from beneath the earth, one of warm water and the other of cold. He caused every variety of food to spring up abundantly from the fertile soil. Hmm, that's strange. I asked for those very same requirements with my realtor. Wouldn't it be nice to have hot and cold water available at the tip of your fingers? Wait. Anyway, back to the story. The next part we're going to start calling Atlas's mother's house, or Plato's house, and the surrounding areas. Here's Plato. Poseidon enclosed the hill in which Plato lived, and breaking the ground, made alternate zones of sea and land, larger and smaller, encircling one another. There were two zones of land and three of water, which he turned as with a lathe, each having its circumference equally distant every way from the center. How Plato explains this is mind-twirling. Most people believe that the city is arranged in the following manner. I find it easier to place names or tags on things, so I'm going to go ahead and explain this and give good names. I started with Plato's island, which was the center island, or Plato's house. Now we need to talk about the surrounding areas. When Poseidon makes two zones of land and three of water, he's excluding Plato's island. Around Plato's island is going to be a band of water. We're going to call that Water Zone 1. Next to Water Zone 1 will be another band of land, as if in a circle. So Water Zone 1 almost looks like a moat between two pieces of land. So we have Plato's Island, a band of water around Plato's Island, a band of land around that band of water. That band of land is going to be Land Zone A. Surrounding Land Zone A is now going to be our Water Zone 2. Around Water Zone 2 will be Land Zone B, which is another band. So it's a Plato's Island, 
a band of water, a band of land around that, a band of water around that, another band of land, and a final band of water. To make this a little bit more complicated, Plato breaks this down into zones. He calls them the outer zone, the middle zone, and the lesser zone. The outer zone is going to consist of the outermost water zone, which would be water zone 3, and the outermost land zone, which would be land zone B. So that's going to be considered the combination of land and water is your outermost zone. Then you have a middle zone, which that is going to consist of land zone A and water zone 2. That's your middle zone. The innermost zone is going to consist of water zone one and clato's island so let's go back from clato's island we have clato's island and that first band of water which is going to be the lesser zone your middle zone is going to be that next band of land with a band of water around it your outer zone is going to be a band of land with another band of water if you think that's confusing just picture how plato writes it also in this story this is where we stop talking about plato and his descendants start taking over. And now we start hearing what his descendants do to what I'm going to deem now Atlantic City. Throughout many generations, that's all Plato gives us, they, the Atlanteans, arranged the whole country in the following manner. Beginning from the sea, they bore a canal, 50 stadia in length. Fifty Egyptian stadia is 4.89 miles or 7.87 kilometers. Fifty Greek stadia is 5.97 miles or 9.61 kilometers. I'm not going to do this again for this episode. My head is starting to hurt. Can we just call 50 stadia 5 miles or 8 kilometers, please? That sea that they're referring to is still the Sea of Atlas or I guess the outermost zone of the Sea of Atlas. So let me rephrase this as, beginning from the water zone 3 of the Sea of Atlas, they pour a canal of 300 feet in width, 100 feet in depth, and about 5 miles or 8 kilometers in length. This canal is important. We're going to give it a name. Let's call it the Entry Canal. Hey, don't judge my lack of creativity. It's Plato that gives its name in the following quote. The entry canal and the largest of the harbors were full of vessels and merchants coming from all parts. Ships, ships, glorious ships. This is why I have a hard time with the 11,500 BCE date for the fall of Atlantis. Why make ships if you can walk on ice? Also, the evolution of ships is pretty well documented by archaeologists. I've posted a link in my episode description for you to take a look if you want to go down that rabbit hole. For this episode, Plato uses the word trireme, so I'm going to take a moment to explain what a trireme is. I haven't gone too far down the rabbit hole for ships. I peaked enough to understand the type of boat and a date that I would be looking for in the Mediterranean Sea. So according to Wikipedia, a trireme means with three banks of oars, or more literally, three rower. 
It is an ancient vessel and type of boat that was used by the ancient marine time civilizations of the Mediterranean Sea. The trireme derives its name from its three rows of oars, manned with one man per oar. The early trireme was a development of the Praetacanter, an ancient warship with a single row of 25 oars on each side, and the bireme, a warship with two banks of oars. The trireme played a vital role in the Persian Wars. One of the very early representations of boats in the Aegean Sea is a graffiti from Thessaly, dated around 4500 to 3300 BCE. You can start seeing the larger ships evolve around 1600 BCE. Again, if you want to go down this rabbit hole, I've linked in my episode description a website that goes over the evolution of ships. Back to Atlantis. Because Plato is so cryptic in how he describes the city, let me share with you a story on how I see it. And then from there, Plato's work will make a little bit more sense. I'm going to get creative a little and place me in first person on a ship approaching the city. I'm standing on the deck of a pretty large boat. There are three floors of men rowing the boat in the windless sea. We made it to the Atlantean entry canal. The canal is pretty wide, enough for several vessels to travel in both directions. Off to the side, I can see boats being repaired or some of the travelers enjoying a lunch on solid ground. It is beautiful, a sight to behold. You can see all sorts of fruit trees and a well-cared-for edible landscape. Free to pick and eat as you choose, but do not respect the gods or their garden. After looping for about an hour through this canal, I can finally see the famous Atlantic City Brass Wall. It is said that this gate is the only way in and out of the city. On both sides of the canal, attached to the wall is a guard tower. One of our crewmen climbed up the ship's main mast to present our papers to one of the guards. The other guard grasping the lever to the pulley system, ready to crash the brass gate separating the canal from the legendary city. The guards approve our cargo and grant us safe passage into the outermost zone. As we pass the guard towers, we look ahead, and we can see land with double-deck harbors chiseled from the native stone. We see endless ships parked along the double docks. The captain turns our boat starboard, or naval right, and we look for a spot to dock our boat. On either side of us is land. On the right side is a giant brass wall that encloses the city. On the left is the outer land zone. The informational map the guard provided us shows us that visitor docking is all the way around the outermost zone of the lake. We could row all the way around and end up right back where we started. The entire harbor was in a circle and we were held captive by the giant brass wall that encircled the city. About a quarter of the way around the harbor, there was a break in the docking spots and a smaller channel had been dug straight through the land. It was large enough for only a single boat to pass through. They bridged over the top so the boat passing through looked like it was going through a tunnel. There was a giant sign that read, Residents Only. The brass gate remained closed and there were guard towers on both sides of the canal, readily guarding the entry gate to the residential parking area. Finally, about a third of the way around the harbor, we found a spot to dock our boat. We stretched our sea legs and began the climb up two stories of stairs to where the shouts of merchants from all over the world invaded our ears. 
All around me are merchants, hotels, restaurants, and bars. There's a residential area in between the crowded center of the shops. Some of the buildings were beautiful, with natural stonework of red, black, and white. Some really shone their architecture genius, whereas other buildings were just bland and without character. Some merchants are holding out free samples and trying to convince me to see their wares. I cross over the land to look at the resident ships, and I see a land bridge connecting the merchant harbor to the next island. I try to sneak a peek as to what lay beyond, but the reflection of the sun off the tin walls stings my eyes. So that was my creative way of being able to explain how I see Plato explaining the city. I'm interested to see what you think as well. Reach out, comment, and tell me what you think. Here's Plato. They bridged over the zones of the sea which surrounded the metropolis. They made a road to and from the royal palace. The bridge, which was one-sixth part of a stadium in width, that would be about 0.02 miles or 0.03 kilometers. They divided the zones of land which parted the zones of sea, leaving room for a single trireme to pass out of one zone to another. Since the banks were raised considerably above water, they covered over the channels as to leave a way underneath for the ships. They also placed towers and gates on the bridges where the sea flows through. The outer zone, the largest of the zones, into which a passage was cut from the sea, was three stadia in width, and the zone of land which came next was of equal distance. The middle zone, one of water and the other of land, were two stadia. The last zone, which surrounded the center island, was a stadium only in width. So, how big was Atlantic City? From the center of Plato's Island, that would be 2.5 stadia to that first band of water, or Water Zone 1. Water Zone 1 was 1 stadia, which brings us to 3.5 stadia. Water Zone 2 was 2 stadia, and Land Zone A was also 2 stadia. So 4 plus 3.5 equals 7.5 stadia. Water Zone 3 and Land Zone B were both 3 stadia. So, 7.5 plus 6 equals 13.5 stadia, or 2.1 kilometers, or 1.3 miles to the outermost zone. If I were to walk in a straight line from the outermost zone on the south side of the outermost zone and walk all the way to the north side, it would be 4.2 kilometers, or 2.3 miles. If we put that circle in a box, it would be 2.3 miles by 2.3 miles, or 4.2 kilometers by 4.2 kilometers, or 575 square miles, or 17.64 square kilometers, or 3,680 acres, or 1,489.2 hectares. Please note that I'm using an Egyptian stadia. Feel free to do the calculations for the Olympic stadia on your own. On with Plato. The stone used in the work was quarried underneath the center island. They also quarried from beneath the zones on the outer and inner side. As they quarried, they also hollowed out double docks, having roofs formed out of the native rock. One kind of stone was white, another black, and the third red. Some of their buildings were simple, but others, they put together different stones, varying in color to please the eye and to be a natural source of delight. The entire area was densely crowded with habitations. 
The entry canal and the largest of the harbors were full of vessels and merchants coming from all parts. From their numbers, the merchants were noisy with the sound of human voices and with bangs and clatters of all sorts night and day. The docks were full of triremes and naval stores, and all things were quite ready for use. Everything, including the zones and the bridges, was surrounded by a stone wall on every side. The outermost zone had a wall that began at the sea and was covered with a coating of brass that enclosed the whole zone. The ends of the wall met at the mouth of the channel, which led to the sea. The next wall they coated with tin. The third wall, which encompassed the citadel, flashed with the red light of orichalcum. Orichalcum was dug out of the earth in many parts of the island, being more precious in those days than anything except gold. This tells me that the Atlanteans could make brass, and brass is an alloy of copper and zinc. Bronze is made with a mixture of copper and tin. Copper is relatively easy to find, but in the Mediterranean, tin was a rarity. Back in the Bronze Age, Cyprus, an island in the Mediterranean, had a monopoly on the tin. However, the Celts, nowadays the United Kingdom, please don't kill me, Irish folk, I know the history, and the ancient Greeks lumped you all in a one. Not me. I know you're separate. Anyway, the Celts had a bunch of tin, and they set up a trading center within the pillars called Tartessus, and this is located on the southern tip of Spain, just inside the Straits. The fact that the Atlanteans had so much tin to use on just a wall is very impressive. I wonder how much that brass wall would be worth today. I'm sure someone out there can or wants to do that math. Don't forget that tin wall. We can give Orichalcum the medium price of gold, whatever metal is below gold. I'm curious, what do you think is behind that tin wall? Good news. We'll find out next week. Thank you so much for continuing to listen. Your support means everything to me. If you want to help make this podcast grow, please subscribe and tell just one other person about this podcast today. We are each our own hero in this story we call life. That means one person has the power to change everything. Who is the one person you tell today, hero? Let's help keep Atlantis alive, or at least reimagined. A new episode will be released every Thursday at 9 p.m. See you then. Wait, are you still here? Thank you. It's appreciated. Here's a clip for next week's episode. They had separate baths for women and for horses and cattle. Each bath, they gave as much adornment as was suitable. The water which ran off, some was carried to the grove of Poseidon, while the remainder was conveyed by aqueducts along the bridges to the outer circles. That was a juicy sentence.